Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our events both in person and online, including on April the 28th, Matthew Continetti on the 100-year war for American conservatism. Coming up on the show today, Garrett M. Graff, author of Watergate, A New History. Uh, Garrett, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. So congratulations on the book. Uh, why a new history of Watergate? So uh, th- I was drawn to this project for a couple of different reasons. Um, uh, I cover national security and, and politics in Washington and have spent the last five years really covering the meat of the uh Russia's attack on the 2016 election, the Trump administration, the Mueller investigation, and all of that, and got interested in the the last time that our country dealt with those types of questions, um, and and sort of how we confronted um, in the 1970s a corrupt and criminal president. And then when I started diving into it, um, became fascinated by how much of the Watergate story is not the story that has been handed down to us through pop culture, that um, it's a much weirder, a wilder, zanier darker story in many ways than that which we've understood. And that there's actually been a a lot of new information that has come out um, even just in the last couple of years about uh, the event, its players, its motives. Um, As just a couple of those examples, um, the last time someone wrote a narrative soup to nuts history of Watergate was in the early 1990s. And so in that quarter century since, uh, we have learned the identity of Deep Throat for the first time, um, FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt, uh, and his identity and his role actually dramatically changes our understanding of what was playing out amid the the fall and winter of Watergate. Um, you know, we, we've sort of misunderstood Deep Throat and misunderstood Deep Throat's motives for 40 years. Yeah, and as, um, you, as, as, as you say, I mean, it, it is one of those stories that we think we know so well. You point out in the introduction that through memoirs, newspaper articles, history books, oral history, official documents, uh, official inquiries, even you point out fan fiction. Uh, this is one of the most written about topics uh, in all American history. Uh, and yet it continues to reap uh, these kind of new elements to it. Absolutely. Um, You know, we've gotten hundreds of hours of Nixon tapes uh, that have been newly released, Um, you know, newly declassified FBI documents. Um, And one of the most significant, actually, uh, that has only come to the fore in the last decade is the centrality of this other scandal uh, known as the Chenault Affair that, as I pieced it together, 
um, it, it really becomes in many ways the original sin that begets all of the rest of the corruption and abuses of power by Nixon and his presidency uh, and, and his White House aides um, as he tries to cover up this scandal that unfolded in the fall of 1968 during his original presidential run. Um, and we've only come to understand what that event was and how it factors into the rest of Watergate uh, in the last decade through some newly declassified documents from the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library um, and a new book by a scholar named Ken Hughes uh, that uh, makes this event that we actually didn't really know was linked to Watergate at all uh, one of the central aspects of the whole event. Um, and this is where, uh, you know, I think part of our popular misunderstanding of Watergate comes, which is when we say Watergate, people think of the burglary um, 50 years ago, this June 17th, 1972, uh, where you have the five burglars arrested in the offices of the Democratic National Committee. Watergate, by the time Nixon resigns two years later, is better understood not as an event, but as a mindset. And it becomes this uh, umbrella for really a dozen different and distinct weird scandals uh, uh, ranging throughout the entire course of Richard Nixon's presidency. Yeah, it's it, in fact that point about Watergate not really being an event but being in effect an attitude of mind is something that's very striking in the book. And and you do actually you make the point over and over again that really there is no single thread that really pulls the story together. The the thing you come away from this book uh, from reading this book with is the this real sense that it's a mess. Watergate is just a mess. Uh, yes, and as perhaps the clearest illustration of this, uh, 50 years later, we still don't know why the burglars burglarized the Watergate at all. Um, and we don't actually even know who ordered the burglary. Um, I go through in the book, um, you know, there are sort of five generally held theories about what was transpiring on that burglary team. Um, and in many ways, it actually seems like the most likely scenario is that there were actually two or three simultaneous motives among the five burglars, not all of whom understood each other's motives at all, that there was sort of duplicity even among the burglars that night about what they were up to and who was doing what. And I, you know, I guess that's that is part of the reason why you have that famous quote from the White House correspondent Helen Thomas in the book that, uh, and she was probably right that I don't think the dust will ever entirely settle on the Watergate scandal. This this sense of not quite knowing what's going on, never really being able to get to grips with the story either then or now, maybe explains why the the dust just won't settle. Yeah. It, it, and it's also fascinating to watch out how that uncertainty unfolds within the Nixon administration and the Nixon White House itself, because part of what becomes clear in the hours, days, weeks and months after Watergate is how little trust there is among the upper ranks of the Nixon White House 
with each other that basically sort of everyone involved was up to their own criminal schemes and so distrusted everyone else and or didn't trust that the unraveling of one of these criminal schemes wouldn't lead to the unraveling of all of them. And so you have this default cover-up that takes place after that initial burglary um, where it seems, you know, it, it seems from the outside, like, why didn't Nixon just hang these five burglars out to dry and say Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt were, you know, these crazy uh, operatives with an overeager imagination, um, you know, my sincere apologies, and then go on to, you know, the landslide victory that Richard Nixon did. And then, you know, Watergate disappears as like some sort of random political trivia question. Um, but the, the answer is basically, there were so many different criminal schemes being carried out by so many different people inside the Nixon White House by June of 1972, that they just couldn't trust that they actually could make a clean break, even among this very distinct uh, event and set of arrests. Which, which in a way is surprising, isn't it? Because it, it, you show time and again in the book, and, and actually we had Dwight Chapin on the show, who'd, who's written a very frank memoir about being diary secretary during uh, Watergate and, the, and what happened to him afterwards. But uh, the thing that comes across in your book and in his memoir is that you know, Nixon as a president was totally in command of the material. In some ways, uh, he's he's one of the presidents uh, that was most on top of the big issues. And yet, as you say, there's this also this dysfunction that means the entire thing completely unravels. And, and and not just Richard Nixon, H.R. Halderman, his chief of staff, uh, you know, is in many ways considered, you know, one of the best organized, best run chiefs of staff that uh, the president has ever had in modern times. Uh, you know, he is, uh, you know, and one of the great questions and ironies in this entire mess is how one of the best run, most efficient White Houses of all time uh, ended up as messy and as disastrous as the Nixon team actually did. And, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, how how much do you think that Watergate matters in terms of, of Nixon's reputation as history moves on that, you know, you you talk about the fact and this is this, I think, is, is, is becoming a common currency among historians to see the presidency differently, that the environmental reform pushing forward on civil rights, the advances for the rights of women in the workplace, Title IX, for example, the foreign policy achievements in the Cold War, the opening to China. I mean, it's it's a remarkable record. Um, it, it makes the, the Watergate even more of a tragedy. But I wonder, where do you think that the balance lies now in when we as historians judge Nixon's reputation? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that part of the, you know, deep tragedy of all of this is Nixon is... Um, you know, by almost any measure, one of the 
three or four most consequential presidents of the 20th century. I mean, he is in many ways the hinge upon which the entire American century turns, um, you know, ushering out the, the era of the liberal New Deal and great society and ushering in the, uh, you know, the groundwork for what later becomes known as the Reagan revolution. Um, you know, the, the Southern strategy in Republican politics that uh, really brings in this much more uh, racialized, nativist, populist uh, strand to the Republican Party that finds its natural conclusion in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. Um, you know, that's Richard Nixon's handiwork right there. Um, and as you begin to mention, um, you know, on foreign policy, he was the first president to uh, to visit Moscow. He was the first president to visit Beijing. He reopens China. He ushers in the era of detente and arms control treaties with the Soviet Union. He brings the war in Vietnam to a close. He does more as president to advance opportunity for women than almost any other president in the 20th century. He um, brings the first female military aides to the White House. He uh, signs Title IX. Um, he brings more than a thousand uh, women into the middle management of the federal government and to replace sort of roles previously held by men. Um, he, you know, he creates OSHA, he creates the EPA, he, um, he comes actually within a few votes of passing a universal basic income. I mean, sort of one of the most like, sort of bizarre moments looking back in history is realizing that this idea, you know, with Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang today actually came within a couple of votes in Congress of passing under Richard Nixon. Um, in the early 1970s. Um, and yet all of that and everything else that Richard Nixon does is shorthanded today and overtaken by this one word of Watergate. And <laughs> it becomes, you know, his historical legacy, um, even as he becomes one of the major political figures of the 20th century. Yeah, and I, I guess in a way that that's almost the, the question that I'm intrigued by. Do you think that the further we get away from Watergate, uh, it seems almost uh, hard to say it, but the further we get away from Watergate, the less it's going to matter in terms of Nixon's legacy? Or do you think it's always going to be the thing which overrides everything else? Oh, I, I think it's going to, the further we get from Watergate, the more it's just mm. going to become Watergate. Um, it, you know, we, uh, the, uh, our memories of the impact of presidents gets shorter and shorter the further away we get. Um, and, you know, most presidents are lucky if there's a word or two that they are associated with um, in history. Uh, and for Nixon, you know, that's always going to be Watergate. 
I think one of the the interesting things we're talking about Nixon, but the book is very much a story about Washington. And in fact, one of your arguments is that uh, in many ways, the Watergate story is best understood as a Washington story. Um, you know, that it seems to change so much uh, about the nature of politics, the cynicism in politics, but also this new kind of investigative journalism, uh, most famously, uh, I guess, Woodward and Bernstein. Yes, you're absolutely right. Like to me, Watergate is the most interesting story ever told of how power works in Washington, um, which at its most basic level is a city, uh, you know, more than any other in the world that defines itself uh, by power and the proximity to. And that this is one of the most interesting stories we have ever heard and ever seen about American democracy. Um, because, and, and this is part of why I think Watergate is so important to understand from uh, where we sit today in American politics, is the way that Watergate worked, the way that Washington worked to remove a criminal and corrupt president from office. Um, and what I mean by that is as you break the story of Watergate down, it is a story of how every institution in the city, the press, the FBI, the Justice Department, the executive branch, the House, the Senate, the federal courts, the appeals courts, the um, the uh, the um, the the Supreme Court becomes the necessary uh, becomes necessary to sort of pull together something that is more powerful than any one of them can do on their own. That it takes every one of these institutions using all of their checks and balances, using Article One, Article Two, Article Three, and the Bill of Rights to force Nixon from office. And, and one of the other things that is very clear is that it's another one of these hinge moments that uh, you show how really after Watergate, it becomes impossible for Washington to be that kind of clubby place that it had been before, that it's not Alan Drury's world of advice and consent and so on. It, it, that makes it more transparent but it also makes it less cooperative in many ways, less consensual. And kind of ultimately, I wonder, despite what you said about how it works there, in the long run, does that also make it less effective when we, we look at some of the implications as, they, uh, as the years roll, roll by? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And it's one that I you know, really try to spend a lot of time uh, thinking about and, and talking about in the book, which is... Watergate changes everything about the way that Washington functions. Um, you know, the world that we live in in American politics in Washington today is the world created by Watergate. Um, you know, you have a hundred new members of Congress come in in the fall after Nixon's resignation, the so-called Watergate babies, uh, who change Congress in numerous ways, big and small. It becomes sort of the, the last gasp of the era of World War I veterans and 
segregationists from the South, sort of the powerful old uh, House and Senate committee chairs. The, and, and by the way, this the, the impact of this is, is long and huge. The last of those Watergate babies is my home state senator, uh, Patrick Leahy, who is resigning or who, who is stepping down from office this year finally i mean this has been 50 years that these people have been rewriting this institution the press develops this entirely new sense and posture of how to cover uh power how to cover the presidency how to cover capitol hill um you know sort of epitomized by woodward and bernstein and and all the president's men but but really sort of a sea change in ways big and small. And it and it changes the way that Congress fights with the president. I mean, Congress before the Watergate had almost no meaningful uh, oversight of the executive branch. Um, you know, when when Sam Irvin's Senate Watergate committee is starting to try to understand what they can do in their hearings in the summer of 73, they actually have to go all the way back to the congressional hearings over the Battle of Bull Run in 1861 in the Civil War to sort of see the type of work that they want to be doing. And yet you, you, and, have, you have a great description as well of, of the committee room with its, its flaking paint and fraying curtains and a kind of a, a sense that this, this is not a place that was used to being in the front line and on camera. Yeah, and that, you know, that that committee room, you know, is like where they did the Titanic hearings and right. the Teapot Dome hearings. I mean, this is like not a space that America is used to in the modern age. Um, and even, you know, everything that we are watching play out, you know, day to day right now over executive privilege with the, you know, tr the, the President Trump's battles with the January 6th committee over executive privilege. That's a legacy of Watergate. Before Watergate, there had never been codified a sense that executive privilege actually existed at all. Presidents had claimed it, but no court had ever recognized it before Watergate. I, I'm struck as well that, I mean, Joe Biden was first elected to the Senate in 1973. So right at the, the height of Watergate, uh, obviously, he's now president. And, and, and in many ways, uh, that, that formative experience, I, I wonder how much you think that that affects his politics and, and also how the two, uh, the two periods compare then and now. Yes, um, I, I think you are right that, I mean, it, he is another great example of the the sort of long shadow of Watergate on, on our politics um, and that he was stepping into an institution that had a very different relationship with the presidency, um, you know, that uh, uh, this was a moment really when America trusted its president differently. And, it, you know, the combination of the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers and Watergate made us look at the president differently. I mean, a big part of the Watergate story is simply that Americans didn't believe at a very basic level that their president could lie to them or would lie to them. And so you see the press, you see Congress in many ways, you know, take Richard Nixon at his word that he, that they don't, you know, 
okay, you you said you weren't involved in the Watergate burglary. We'll, uh, you know, we'll move on with our lives. And that's uh, obviously not true uh, now, but the fact is at that time, uh, people trusted the presidency. I wonder as well what you as a historian make of the fact that this is a story that has very much the agenda has been set by cinema, television, uh, obviously the very famous film, All the President's Men about Woodward and Bernstein, uh, films like Frost Nixon, which looked at the famous interviews between uh, David Fro Frost and, and, and Richard Nixon when he was out of office, uh, and even uh, this week, a, a new series, Gaslit, that looks at the uh, story of, of Martha Mitchell, the, the wife of the Attorney General. Um, how, how do you think that fiction has represented uh, the story of Watergate and what kind of impact has that had? Yeah, it, it, you know, I mentioned at the top of the interview, Deep Throat and sort of how we've misunderstood Deep Throat. And, and there's no better example of that than, than the movie All the President's Men, where you know, Hal Holbrook plays Deep Throat meeting Bob Woodward in the shadows of a parking garage. And, you know, for 40 years, America thought that uh, Deep Throat was some, you know, democracy savior. I mean, uh, someone who was, you know, a Nixon insider disgusted at what he was seeing and wanting to, you know, to try to preserve good government and ethics and, you know, truth, justice and, you know, apple pie. Um, but it turns out Deep Throat was Mark Felt and Mark Felt didn't care about any of that stuff. Um, and what we sort of now understand and, you know, uh, as I said, that this is the first book, the first narrative of Watergate that has ever been able to place Mark felt in the context of that he actually existed. Um, he was angry that as deputy director of the FBI, he was passed over uh, by Nixon to uh, and that a man named Pat Gray had been installed as the acting director of the FBI instead of him. And so Mark felt goes out there trying to sink Pat Gray. He doesn't care about Richard Nixon really at all. And, uh, and in fact, part of what is fascinating about coming to understand Mark Felt and his role as, as Deep Throat is there are times that Mark Felt actually knows deeply uh, damaging information about Richard Nixon that he never bothers to tell Bob Woodward because it doesn't help him in his quest to sink Pat Gray. And so, you know, what what we've sort of often thought uh, because of pop culture was Mark, you know, was Deep Throat protecting American democracy is basically Mark felt playing, you know, backroom bureaucratic knife fighting office politics. Yeah, in fact, the the one debunking of a, of a popular myth that I could have done without in the book is where you tell us that sadly, follow the money was not a real line, that it, it was a screenwriter's uh, invention. Yes. And, and in fact, um, you know, there's no proof that Deep Throat ever said follow the money <laughs> to, um, uh, to, to Bob Woodward. Um, and, and it becomes, you know, as we sort of talk about, you know, one of the things that just really is fascinating to me that sort of, you know, uh, 
the three most famous sort of takeaways from Watergate, um, you know, never actually show up in the scandal in the way that people think, you know, Deep Throat never said follow the money. Um, Nixon's line, I'm not a crook, uh, actually has nothing to do with Watergate itself. It has to do with a sort of related but, but distinct set of questions about presidential tax fraud that come up in the midst of the investigations into Watergate. Um, and then sort of the lesson that like you hear quoted back in Washington uh, crisis communications, you know, a thousand times since, you know, Nixon showed the cover up is always worse than the crime <laughs> actually turns out not to be true when you fully understand Watergate, which is the crimes were far worse than Nixon's cover up um, and that Nixon's crimes were numerous and uh, and quite terrible. I mean, they are some of the you know worst abuses of power we have ever seen from an American president. And then finally, Garrett, uh, to turn the comment that you made right at the top of the show on its head, you said that one of the inspirations for writing this book was that you became interested in it uh, when you were looking at contemporary politics. I wonder, now having written the book, what lessons do you think you can draw from Watergate when you go back to your other job, which is analysing uh, politics today? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that really stands out is, you know, why democracy worked then and why it doesn't now. Um, and, and to me, the, it, it is fundamentally a question of how Congress views its role in Washington. Um, that what we saw different between Watergate and the Trump years were in Nixon's time in the Watergate scandal, the members of Congress acted first as members of Congress, that they saw themselves as members of a legislative body that was a co-equal branch of government to the presidency, and that they had a responsibility to American democracy to hold the executive branch in check um, and to punish its abuses of power. And so members of Congress in both the House and the Senate acted first as members of the legislative branch, and only second as Republicans. And what I think the change to now is that you have seen the members of the Republican Party in the Trump era act as Republicans first and members of Congress second, that they see their highest loyalty not to their branch of government and its prerogatives, but to the president of the same party. Although did the did the system not hold ultimately when it mattered in in January twenty twenty one? I would sort of argue it arguably didn't, since you still saw you know scores of Republicans vote to not certify the election in the hours after the storming of uh, of the Capitol, um, and, and ultimately you know the Republicans oppose the impeachment of the president, even though, you know, he was being charged with inciting a literal insurrection against the legislative branch itself. So the book is Watergate, A New History. It's written by my guest, Garrett M. Graff, and published by Simon & Schuster. But for now, Garrett, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. 
Uh, thanks so much for a great conversation. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.